Well, if you'll uh, open your Bibles with me, we're going to end up in Philippians chapter 1, so you can turn there. We'll look at another passage before then. As you know, the pastors quarterly go on a retreat, and this time they went to Sun River. Had a nice time in Sun River. Yeah. And I always find it a privilege to do this when they're gone. Kim Wicks, Kim Wicks was the second youngest in a family of five daughters. Some of her earliest memories were of the horrors of the war in North Korea. At the age of six, the war in Korea had tragically touched her life. A bombing had destroyed her home and left her blind. Her family was displaced and forced to wander from place to place for food. Her father became so distraught that he sold his three oldest daughters to a family to do housework. And tragically, some days later, in desperation, he threw his two other daughters into a river. The youngest drowned, but the six-year-old Kim survived. She managed to float, taking in a lot of water, but came to rest on a rock and was actually rescued by her father. A few weeks later, he left at the door of World Vision home for the deaf and blind, his daughter Kim. She was raised in a Christian home. Four years later, Kim was adopted by her American family and brought to the United States. It was in this supportive family environment that her musical gift began to surface. She had a beautiful singing voice. She received the Fulbright Scholarship, studied in Vienna, and sang in churches across America. Eventually, she was invited to become a member of the Billy Graham team, and in 1974, after 20 years separation, she was united with her birth father during a visit to Korea. I have a question. Would have all of these good things happened had Kim not suffered blindness and desertion? I would say yes. Second question, most important, was God in this? Was God in the story of Kim's life and the losses she incurred in all of the blessings and miraculous things that happened to her that followed. According to my Bible, I would say the highest possibility is yes. You see, it seems it's a profound mystery for us as believers that in the life of faith, the weave that shapes our character is made up of both bright and dark threads. They go together. 
If you ever listen to an orchestra or have gone to a symphony, there are moments that are suspenseful and tense in sound like oboe music, deep bass. And then, of course, generally, immediately following, there are high harmonious parts of victory. It's a perfect picture of the Christian faith. God forms our character both by the harshness and delights of life. But if we focus only on a single thread, particularly the dark one, the moments in life that we don't understand, where we might even doubt God's love or feel that he's forgotten or not heard our prayers. Those moments, which are many for all of us, if we only focus on the troubling times and separate it from the whole of the tapestry of our life, we become confused, unable to make sense of it, and bitter. I'm going to talk this morning a little bit about God's perspective, seeing our life from his point of view. More simply put, growing in our faith to the point where we can see exactly where his hands at work occasionally know what it means and be able to look back and see that he didn't miss a note in our life. So we face these times of questioning. You know, if you just look at a, a bright or a white strand or thread, There's not, you get bored pretty quick. And if you just focus on a black one, that's equally as unexciting. But when we weave them together, there's something to stand back and admire. The Lord wants us to learn how to see life from his vantage point. Because it's so easy for us to get caught in the weeds of stress. We, pray, we sang about it, as Rush mentioned, the stress. We prayed about it. We get caught in the weeds of stress. Many times we, we, we question the wisdom of God in our life. And yet, I think the best definition of wisdom I've ever heard is seeing our life the way God sees it. That's wisdom. Viewing our life the way God sees it. How do we know how he sees it? Word of God. Scriptures. You're not going to get it from the counsel of a friend on a stool in the bar next to you. The Scriptures. Scriptures. 
filled with gold nuggets of truth that are eternal. That's where we learn what God is up to in our life. So as you look back to the corridors of your life, your past, have you been able to trace God's hand? His handprint in your life. Usually we don't have 2020 till we look back. But can you look at moments where you actually see his handprint? You know, kind of like that picture, I won't go into it, but the footprints in the sand. That picture, many of you know about that. Was he involved in your life during those specifically hard times? As well as the times of blessing. Or... Do you feel trapped by circumstances at time and chalk it up only to the devil? Because the Lord would never allow this kind of pain, really. Do we understand that it's only our only responsibility when we're disillusioned and perplexed by God's ways to trust him. And for many of us who have not traced his hand for a while, trust is the only string we have left to play. Trust. Perspective. It actually means, the word means to see through clearly and to have a more knowledgeable, crisp point of view of what's going on with the Lord and our relationships, the pain. Just a clearer view. That's what it means. Clearer view of what's happening to us. Uh, I heard this phrase one time, I really like it. Our circumstances may not change, but how you view them can change. So we all know that many, many times we've asked the Lord to lift the burden that we're carrying, and he doesn't do it. But somehow he changes our point of view and angle to look at it in the process. That's called God's vantage point of what he's doing in our life. And I like this phrase. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. When you change the way you look at things, the things that you look at change. You know, as a biblical counselor... I've really chalked up biblical counseling to this. It's giving someone simply a different biblical way to look at their problem. You don't have to lay on a couch to get that. (laughs) Biblical counseling, all it is, this is what I do, all it is, is hopefully, with the Lord's help, giving the person a different vantage point 
on what's really going on. Because many, many times we have misperceptions of what is happening. So having the right perspective can give you a different way to look at things. Now, you probably have heard about this daughter who was in college who uh, uh, had a couple problems. Low grades and no money. And she wrote this letter, crafty and ingenious, to hopefully change her parents' perspective. Dear Mom and Dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I have fallen in love with a guy named Bruno. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got divorced. We've been going steady for two months, and I plan to get married in the fall. By the way, mom and dad, Bruno got divorced because he said his wife didn't take care of him well. Little tip for those of you helping someone through a rocky marriage. I've decided to move into his apartment. I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, she says, at any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Page two. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is not true. <laughs> but Mom and Dad, it is true that I got a C- minus in French and flunked out in math. It is true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. Now that's one sharp student. <laughs> and I feel that after the parents heard the bottom half of the letter, they were happy, happy to help her with her tuition. <laughs> Anything else you need, honey? Change of perspective. Years ago, Jenny and I took a trip to um, a Hawaiian island and uh, they had a beautiful, beautiful canyon there. They called it the, the, uh, the Grand Canyon of the Pacific. Waimea Canyon. Beautiful, beautiful. Brown, green hues, gold lines through the mountains. Gorgeous. And as we pulled up, there was a lot of cars there, so I parked on the further end of the viewpoint and what I saw there, I said, oh, Jenny, look at this. But when I got out of the car and walked a little bit further over, it was even more beautiful. And further over, it was even more beautiful. Sometimes it doesn't take a lot for us to get a different point of view with what God is doing in our life. For those of you that um, are in photography, 
you know that it doesn't take a whole lot of movement from your fingers or wrists to change the focus. Sometimes a new point of view of what the Lord's doing or a new direction or understanding is just a breath away. But I think we get so locked in, I call them crack filters. They interpret everything that happens to us. We get so locked in to these messages that we're missing what God's trying to tell us. So it takes time as well and silence and asking the Lord to reveal his plan for our life. A couple quick examples and we'll go to Philippians. Never more important to have a different perspective for the young mother that's knee deep in diapers and clothes and laundry and baby bottles and 2 a.m. feedings to know that someday this is gonna be worth it all. Perspectives needed for the medical intern spending his or her life, weeks, months, in fact years, studying, being on call, shadowing, to remember that that's not the big picture. The big picture is they'll be able to save the lives that they've always dreamed of saving. Or the aging couple. We need new perspectives sometimes. Rather than spending a lot of time talking about our achy joints, how about talking about the dreams we could possibly still have together? Huh? Perspective. Now, before I talk about Philippians 1, let me just talk a little bit about how Paul got there. Of course, he was converted on the road to Emmaus overnight became one of the most powerful voices for the gospel and the fact that Jesus was Messiah, which the Jews hated him for. You can just read in 1st, 2nd Corinthians some of the trials that he went through. Unbelievable. I mean, he was beaten three times with rods, shipwrecked, died a couple times, one time, beaten mercilessly, he goes on and on and on and on and on. And he was falsely accused by the Jews of um, blaspheming the temple. Because one time he went into the temple and there was a man that was a Gentile with him. You know, he brought the gospel to the Gentiles, which the Jews hated as well. And they were going in to take a vow together, which was totally appropriate. And they lied and they said he's blasphemed the temple. And so he had to stand before Two governors, essentially on trial. And then he had to stand before Agrippa, this is the latter portion of Acts, who was the king. And he finally said to Agrippa, you know what, I appeal to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen, Paul was a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens can appeal to a higher court. So he knew he would get no justice there so he appealed to Caesar in Rome. He then gets on a ship with a bunch of other prisoners and they go into a furious storm. The ship almost ran aground and the Roman soldiers on the ship 
We're talking about killing all the prisoners because anytime a prisoner escapes under the guard of a Roman, they lose their head, the Roman guard. So their plan was foiled. They found out about it. They all ended up on the island together. And while Paul is making a bonfire because they had to swim to shore, a poisonous snake bit him in the hand. The Lord immediately healed him. He had to stay on the island three months and finally arrives in Rome. Matter of fact, turn quickly to Acts 28, and I'll just show you a little snapshot of what happened. Acts 28, last chapter in the book of Acts, he tells his story, actually. He's, uh, he, he arrives in Rome. He's greeted by some brothers that knew he was coming. And they put him up for a few nights. He was there for a week. They put him up for a few nights before he got to Rome. And he was telling them that uh, there should have been some letters sent ahead accusing me of what I've done in Judea. Let's start at verse 21. He says, they replied, we have not received any letters from you, Judea, concerning you. And none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. That's because they didn't have a cause to accuse him. Verse 22, but we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking about this sect. They call it a sect at that point. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. Paul was on house arrest, so he was staying somewhere in Rome in a home that he had to pay rent for, and people gave him donations, he paid rent there, stayed there from two to four years, waiting to meet Caesar. As we'll see in a minute, he was chained to a guard the entire time. Yet they gave him some freedom, that's what he's talking about here. From morning till evening, he had people come to visit him. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement by saying the Holy Spirit spoke truth to your forefathers when he said, you'll never be hearing or understanding. Jump down to verse 28. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to Philippians 1. So what happened was Paul, for whatever the reason, probably because he was chained by his wrist to a guard, couldn't write any letters to the churches for a while. And so although the brothers in Rome knew that where he was, um, the people in Philippi, 
one of his favorite churches, and Ephesus and all these other places had not heard from him. They didn't know he was, if he was dead. They didn't know if he was being tortured every day. They had no idea what was going on with Paul. And apparently word got back to him and he wrote the letter of Philippians. I'm going to start at verse 12, Philippians chapter 12. And this is Paul's perspective in a very, very uncomfortable, unjust, and undetermined time of what God was allowing. And why? This is his take on it. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, verse 13, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So it's as if he's saying, don't worry about me. I've not been silenced one bit. I'm sharing the gospel almost on a daily basis. People that I would have never met or known, dignitaries, soldiers, people from the imperial court come to listen to truth every day. So whereas on the surface, everybody's thinking the worst, we'll never see him again. Much like we do in dark times. We think the worst. Yes? Or is that just me? Not what, could poss- what, not what God could possibly do through it, but possibly what's going to happen to us now through it. And so the first thing he lets them know is, I bet everything you're thinking that's happened to me, I'm sure has not. Let me tell you the truth of what God's doing. I'm advancing the gospel every day. Now the word advance means it's a military term to remove all obstacles as the army makes its way to the enemy. It even talks about, it's a word that talks about cutting the underbrush out of the way and nothing is stopping the Roman regiment. Oh, we've seen movies like this. I think there's 200 in a regiment walking on the hilltops, going to a destination, keeping a perfect cadence, the spear standing tall, sunlight rays bouncing off the tips of the spears. That's what we're talking about. Paul says, just as the Roman regiments let nothing stop them 
to face the enemy. So nothing's stopping the gospel as well. I teach it. And you really need to know that's why I'm here in chains. The Lord will put us in situations that are highly uncomfortable and unjust to accomplish his will in our life and to get his truth into other people's lives. He goes, that's why I'm here. Look at verse 13. I really like this one. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. So think about this. First of all, the chain that he had was on his wrist and it was only about eight inches on the wrist of the other Roman guard. Chained at the wrist, two to four years, in a house that he had to pay for. And that's how he taught people too. Makes me want to ask, who was the one that was really chained? Paul or the guard? Let's just say Paul had a captive audience. Every time Paul wanted to stand up, he had a tug on his wrist. All the time. And he is delighting in the fact, from God's perspective, that's exactly why I'm supposed to be here. Exactly. So uh, that's, now you got, you know, got to know that the soldiers went in shifts, okay? So they probably had three shifts. So shift number one, here comes a soldier, eight hours, let's call it. He leaves, new soldier comes in, eight hours. He leaves, new soldier comes in. That's three soldiers a day. When he says almost the entire palace guard has heard the gospel because of my change, he's probably pretty close to it. Two to four years, how many people has he shared the gospel with in Roman Uniform. These guys would have never cared to listen to Paul. They would have never gone in a synagogue to hear about this new Messiah. And that's what he's really doing there. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Proverbs 13, by the way, says, In his heart... A man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. The Lord does. So for those of you that are planners, and you know way in advance <laughs> what you're going to do or where you're going to go or how you're going to live, at any moment, the Lord can mess up your plans and saying, no, now you're going here. Matter of fact, just a little sidebar, he ends up in Philippi, Paul, and then they have the church there, and then now he's writing to them. He and Timothy and Silas were headed to Turkey. This is in Acts chapter 16. They're headed to Turkey to bring the gospel, and two different times we read that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into Turkey, and they were confused. They thought they had the mind of the Lord, just like you and I, when we think, oh, this is God's will, and then we find out that it's not. 
And then they're going, what do we do? And Paul has a dream, and a man is in that area, the Philippi area, and he's saying, come over to be with us. We need to hear you. We need to meet you. And so they talk together, and they go, must be God's will, and they went over there. Had it been Paul's desire, there never would have been a book of Philippians. God totally detoured him to go to Philippi to start a church to be beaten mercilessly with Silas because they were worshiping the Lord in a dungeon at midnight to leave Philippi to go through all of the stuff he went through in Jerusalem and Caesarea now he ends up in Rome, writing to the Philippians. I mean, you talk about how everything connects. If you look back in your life, everything, like what are you doing here right now? How did you get here right now? Everything that led up to where you're at in your life, the Lord's had a hand in, if you belong to him. That's good, bad, or otherwise. The Lord has had a hand in it. And so, Paul goes, this isn't a waste of time. Continue, look at verse 15. Oh, 14, he says, and another reason the Lord's in this, the brothers that have observed me teach in my change, look at verse 14. He says, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. They watched him teach Roman guards, sit in front of dignitaries that could have had his head in a second, and nothing stopped him from talking to anyone and everyone about the pride of wearing those chains. They became bold. And I would say, for those of us in here, if we go through troubling times that are dark and hard to understand and unjust and very, very painful, and for some powerful way we still feel peace and we worship through our tears, other people see that. And they take courage and boldness as a result. People are watching us. You gotta know that. How are you facing your trials? Nobody's perfect. Sometimes it's very dark. How are you doing? Um, then go to 15 and 16. If it wasn't enough for him to be chained and incarcerated for two to four years, there were people out in public that were also preachers, and they were Christians. And there was something in their craw that made them hate Paul. Maybe it was because he was a father of many people's faith. Maybe it was because he was a theologian and very knowledgeable. Maybe it was because people gave him gifts and took care of him wherever he went, whatever it was. There were some people in, out in the community that were believers that were purposely trying to harm him. Look at verse 15. 
It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Look at verse 17, I'm jumping down. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. You know, it's one thing for someone to accidentally offend us or for another thing, maybe get in a skirmish with someone and for a temporary time, there's a separation with family members. But it's something altogether for someone to go after you and I. The phrase he uses actually means there are some out there when I'm in these chains trying to grind the chains into my skin. They purposely want to hurt me with evil motivations. Now he's just telling the truth. He doesn't name their names. He doesn't condemn them to hell. He's just telling the facts, but he puts a positive spin even on that. Like, how do you put a positive spin on that? Look what he says in verse 16. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. It was not coincidental that Paul was there. It was not because Agrippa the king signed off on his trip that he was there. It was not because Caesar couldn't wait to meet him that he was there. God put him there. That phrase actually means that that is the post, it's a military term again. It's interesting he uses military terms and that's exactly where he is. That's the post that God assigned him. So listen to this. Paul has been assigned by his king to this post of imprisonment to declare the beauty, the grace, and the wonders of his Savior. However, the man chained to him was also assigned by his king. And that was his post. But it wasn't to bring glory to God, obviously. It was to bring honor to Caesar. And I guarantee you, he wasn't just chained by a guard but the Lord Jesus was chained to him as well. And he was right with him all the way. Paul had that perspective. He said, don't feel bad. God's the one that put me here. Now, I can't say that with just one um, detour to the life of Joseph. Sold by his 11 brothers, for those of you that are having family stress, yes, yes. By the way, happy Thanksgiving in advance. 
Those of you that are having family stress, you think about Joseph. He had 10 half-brothers, which is a problem in itself. 10 half-brothers that hated him with a passion. His father favored him. His father did him no, no favors. By the way, dads, never favor one child over the other. Grandparents, never favor one grandchild over the other. You will actually ignite and split your family in half if they know about it. Mark it. It's a warning. It's a warning. I'm telling you right now. So his brothers hated him. They threw him down a pit, tried to kill him, sold him as a slave to Egypt. He's falsely accused. He's in Egypt by Potiphar's wife. Says that he tried to rape her. Throwing in the pit in a dungeon. Actually ended up in a couple pits. His brother threw him in a pit. And when he got to Egypt, he was thrown in another pit. Not for what he's done wrong, but for what he's done right. God's perspective here. He gets out, interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh makes him the prime minister of Egypt. His brothers, coincidentally, don't live all that far from Egypt, and they're going through the same famine. And so they have to go to Egypt for food. And who's in charge of handing out the food? Joseph, their brother. Coincidental? I think not. Finally, he discloses himself to his brother, himself to his brother. And the brothers, when, he, when they find out it's Joseph, they didn't know he was, you know, he had a shaved head, he's a little bit older, he spoke Egyptian. They were petrified. They said, now what we've done to our brother has become, main no, uh, uh, become known. He's going to kill us. And Joseph heard them. They didn't know that Joseph spoke Hebrew. And Joseph started crying. And he said, come to me, my brothers. And he said exactly what Paul said. You didn't send me here. God did. What? No, his brothers threw them down to pit. Potiphar's wife lied, and then they put him in this, the hell hole. The hole, they called it. They did that to Joseph. People have done that to you. Or have they? Has God put you where you're at right now? You got a lot of scars to show it? He said, you brothers didn't send me here. God did. Paul said, don't feel bad for me because God himself put me next to these guards and I'm doing what he's calling me to do. No more whining. Trust. And... Uh, of course, he says, in the last part of that verse, he goes, uh, so all of this is going on. They're preaching from bad motives. They want to hurt me. They're rubbing the chains into my flesh. And look what he says in verse 18. But what does it matter? What does it matter? That's secondary. That's not what's most important in my life, he says. He goes, look, 
What does it matter? The important thing that is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and that is because I rejoice. I'm going to close with an illustration. Some of you have heard of Corey Ten Boom. I've mentioned her many times at Trail. She and her family hid Jews from the Nazis in the Second World War in a town uh, in Holland. And uh, her father had a watch shop below, and then they lived upstairs, and an informant in the neighborhood, a friend of theirs, a very good friend of the family, um, told the Nazis what they were doing. They came in, shot one of the brothers or cousins on the roof when he tried to escape, murdered him. You can see this in the movie, The Hiding Place. Gotta see it. And then the father, who was very aged, and her and her sister were taken to a concentration camp, thrown in the back of cattle cars. We've all seen the black and white photos of this. There was not a more brutal time in the last century. And uh, Corey Ten Boom's father died there, her sister died there, and there was an error made uh, with another uh, prisoner, and Corey was assigned the wrong number, and it was a number for freedom, and they let her out. She was headed to the smokestacks, they let her go. And for the next 50 years of her life, she would preach of the Lord's faithfulness in the darkest season of her life. She talked about God's hand of providence that, that if it's meant to hurt that comes into our life, he has a way that by the time it reaches us, he turns it for our good. Like all things work together for good to them who love God and to them who are called by, according to his purpose. So she would share these with the audience, share these things with the audience. She only died about 10 years ago. She was 95. Preached for 50 years about God's love in the concentration camp for her. And at the end, at the end of the teaching, uh, she would show a, an embroidered picture, okay? The backside of the embroidered picture, and you know if, if you do an embroidery or a stitching and you look at the backside, it's just a mass of tangled webs, and that's the picture she showed. She's talking to an audience like I'm talking to you. We're talking about how God works in our life through the most difficult seasons in our life. And the back of that picture is a tangled mess, just like some of our lives have been, even in Christ. Tangled mess. There's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no, what is it? And then after she showed that, she showed the front side, which is a crown. 
There's pearls in it, gold. And she said, even the darkest times of our lives, friends, God has been weaving this crown of eternal life for you. And right now, you might be focused on the threads of chaos, senselessness, but you must know that even as we pour out our heart before the Lord, he's weaving beauty into our life. And we will wear a crown, the crown of eternal life because of our Lord Jesus. That's the perspective that God wants us to never forget. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we have hope since the first day you put oxygen into our love, our lungs. We have had hope. Your people are never without hope because you're weaving black and white threads into our life and you are putting together an eternal home for us, paradise. Help us to look up rather than down. Put a new song in our heart, even praise unto our God. Forgive us for our complaining. Forgive us for our doubt. Forgive us for those times when we metaphorically shook our fists in your face and even questioned for a moment your love. And Lord, build our faith today. Pray specifically for those, Lord, who are exactly where that tangled mess is now. Give them a fresh touch. Build their faith. Help them to see you in a new way. In this we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.